The footage released overnight Friday shows militants using picks and sledgehammers to chop away at sculptures. When ISIL destroys dozens of shrines in Mosul, these acts of vandalism are tragedy for all civilized people. And the civilized world must take a stand. It is an attack on humanity because it is destroying crucial elements that make up the identity of a people or even a person. We were told that ever since IS took over Palmyra, there's been caliphate-sponsored looting on a massive scale. By imposing a new ban on the trade in smuggled Syrian antiquities, this resolution both cuts off a source of ISIL revenue and helps protect an irreplaceable cultural heritage of the region and of the world. Destruction or theft. Between 2014 and 2017, the Islamic State group occupied territory in Iraq. At its height, it controlled almost a third of the country and over 4,500 historical sites. Alongside the dramatic pictures of the destruction of artifacts in the irreplaceable ancient sites like Nimrud, others have claimed that this destruction was largely carried out to conceal extensive looting of valuable artifacts. This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And I'm Laura Adal. Today we're going to be discussing the new GI report by Tom Westcott, which is called Destruction or Theft, Islamic State, Iraqi Antiquities and Organised Crime, with guests from across the GI network of experts. But to begin with, Laura, you've been looking at Tom's report, which examines evidence of ISIS looting in and around Iraq's Nineveh province and considers claims that the group stole priceless artefacts to trade and fund their state. These claims contradict the group's self-proclaimed ideological destruction of these antiquities, but given that ISIS has lost all the territory it once controlled, why is this still an important issue? It's true, ISIS did lose its last territorial holding in March of last year. And since then, the issue of antiquities has largely fallen off the global radar. But that doesn't mean it's stopped. Countless artifacts from Nineveh are still missing. And with Iraqi archaeology experts alleging that ISIS excavated important historic sites, it's safe to assume that at least some of these stolen antiquities are now moving through different transnational crime networks and towards global antiquities collectors and marketplaces, making this crime ongoing. And how did ISIS get access to these artifacts? Well, when ISIS seized control of Mosul in 2014, it rapidly expanded its control to almost a third of the country, which meant that in this area, they could act with complete impunity. And within this territory, the group gained control of thousands of important archaeological sites, including a number of UNESCO World Heritage sites, such as the first century Parthian city of Hatra and the old Assyrian city of Ashur. At its height, ISIS carried out a pretty effective and widespread social media campaign to gain publicity and spread its message, featuring a lot of shocking images, including the smashing up of ancient artifacts in Mosul Museum, and later at the over 3,000-year-old former Assyrian capital of Nimrud. Videos of the group show militants doing all of this because they claimed that the artifacts represented false idols that people used to worship instead of the true god. So it was their so-called ideological duty to destroy these pieces. And what were some of the red flags that suggest ISIS didn't actually destroy these antiquities? Well, in researching this report, the Global Initiative carried out extensive interviews with heritage experts, security officials and local residents and found evidence that suggests the destruction of a lot of these artifacts were staged to cover up the group's real intention. 
which was to loot sites and trade the artifacts outside of Iraq for financial gain. Now, research suggests that ISIS had either expert archaeologists with them or were receiving remote instructions and guidance on how to carry out excavations to find treasures, how to use specialized archaeology tools, and how to determine which pieces were the most valuable. For example, archaeology experts and museum directors noticed some inconsistencies in the videos. So in the Mosul Museum, for example, exhibits that should have been visible in the background were missing. And when museum staff were finally allowed back in, they found that the museum was completely stripped clean. So there were no fragments of any artifacts, and there was evidence that pieces were carefully taken out, not just ripped down from the walls. There was also a time lag of several months between the time the group gained control of specific sites and the time they posted videos of destroying artifacts. So this means they would have had plenty of time to move out items and make replicas to make destruction propaganda videos. Another example is the looting of an ancient Assyrian palace that lay beneath the mosque and shrine of Nabi Yunus in Mosul. ISIS told residents that they had blown up the shrine to stop people from, quote, praying to graves, something which is forbidden in Islam. But senior archaeology experts pointed out that removing the shrine and the mosque were essential to gaining access to the Assyrian palace underneath where more valuable pieces were located. And sure enough, Iraqi authorities found tunnels that had been dug by ISIS to reach the Assyrian treasures. So the fact that the group knew where to dig the tunnels is simply just just impossible without having that information in advance. Suspicions were also supported by other evidence, like raids by U.S. and Iraqi forces, where they found artifacts, some with even uh, museum numbers still on them, in ISIS members' home. And so this supports claims that ISIS showcased the destruction of antiquities under the guise of them being un-Islamic. But when in reality, it was all of a, a ruse to cover up their true aim, which was to loot these sites and trade artifacts as a means to fund themselves and their terrorist operations. I mean, you mentioned there that clearly looting ancient artifacts takes quite a bit of knowledge. But what about the ability to actually move pieces? How was ISIS presumably able to do that? Right. Well, one difficulty facing researchers is determining the extent antiquities theft by ISIS were orchestrated within and outside of the group. Experts say that moving such high value pieces would have required using organized crime networks. We know ISIS undoubtedly made money from the antiquities trade, but in order to do so, they had to get looted antiquities out of Iraq and towards global marketplaces. And so the report outlines how artifacts move between different organized crime networks, including those that work in different areas of organized crime, like drug smuggling. So it outlines how pieces typically move through many different hands, usually, though not always, through low-level smugglers in order for ISIS to distance itself from the artifacts before eventually ending up in more mainstream global markets. Other times, those dealing with illicit activities would need to have senior level connections and more specialized criminal networks in order to navigate the building of fake authentication and provenance. And these networks can be from all over the world. Also, looted antiquities have also been known to be directly sold to buyers via social networks like Facebook, WhatsApp, and Snapchat. And that's something we'll come to later on in the show, the the use of social media with, with things like this. but. Where were these artifacts headed, and is there any idea where they might be now? Well, since ISIS held territory across national borders, the group relied heavily on black market trade routes from Iraq and through Syria. Eventually, artifacts would reach Turkey as the main destination outside of ISIS-held territory and onwards to other destinations. But it's hard to tell where the pieces are now. Since the thefts took place in occupied territory, the only people who really know are ISIS members themselves. And the report states that many artifacts remained in Iraq, 
largely recovered or even accidentally destroyed by Iraqi forces during their airstrikes for liberation. Although Mosul Museum staff said recoveries have dwindled since 2017, a rare 600-year-old Islamic manuscript was returned as recently as December 2019, when a civilian actually spotted it on sale in a Muslim market. And pieces are still occasionally being recovered in other northern Iraqi provinces. So, for example, in mid-January of this year, locals announced on Twitter that security forces in the city of Kirkuk had arrested three people carrying 38 artifacts originating from Mosul. But given that ISIS occupied Nineveh's province for approximately two and a half years, it's likely that they were able to move a considerable quantity out of the country. And it's generally known that a number of ISIS members have either escaped or survived fighting and are still alive. Some are hiding in Iraq and Syria, while others may be living freely in neighboring countries. And so there is a very real chance that many artifacts have actually already found their way out. And outside of Iraq, these pieces could already be in the hands of private collectors or are hidden in long-term storage facilities as part of the logistical supply chain of the marketing of antiquities. It can actually take years and even decades for these antiquities to reappear on international marketplaces, just long enough for people to forget and for attentions to subside on where and how they came about. And what can be done to make sure that when these pieces appear again, they are identified and hopefully recovered? Well, first, publicity is key. The report highlights how important it is to raise awareness among collectors, traders, and auction houses to make sure that items originating from Iraq are carefully cross-checked. The report makes a number of recommendations. All efforts, for example, to combat the illicit trade in antiquities should firmly implement UNESCO's Resolution 2199, which prevents trade in any artifacts illegally removed from Iraq since 1990 and across participating member states. In Iraq, awareness raising among Iraqis themselves is essential, and antiquities authorities should prepare comprehensive lists detailing missing pieces believed to be stolen by ISIS. Also, efforts by international crime prevention agencies are key and should be ramped up, including cracking down on countries where laws on artifact trading is much more relaxed. So we see both, for example, both Interpol and the Art Loss Register also hold internationally available databases listing artifacts stolen from Iraq, including some of those taken by ISIS, which auction houses and collectors should check. However, the report does note that lists urgently need updating to include missing antiquities from Nemrud and Hatra, as well as an updated version listing missing pieces from the Mosul Museum. In this way, these lists could serve as longstanding documents to checking future sales and trafficking of such items. But generally, there is a global ignorance about what's happened. So there's a serious risk that antiquities looted by ISIS will be traded in international marketplaces in the future. So reports like this one can help keep memories alive and raise awareness of how serious the problem is and how the looting of these artifacts is really a loss to humanity itself. In the long term, the attitude of arts markets need to be changed. Simple as that. And so the report cites one UNESCO official who said it best. If there's no demand, there would be no illicit trade. Thank you very much, Laura. And you can find Tom Westcott's report in the bio for this show and also on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime website, www.globalinitiative.net. Let's just take a moment to give a bit of background on ISIS, who are also known as Islamic State and ISIL. Who were they and, and where did they come from? Colin P. Clark is a senior research fellow at the Soufon Center in New York City and an assistant teaching professor at Carnegie Mellon University, who has an expertise in ISIS financing, the future of terrorism and transnational crime. 
Yeah, so the Islamic State is a Salafi jihadi group, essentially that emerged. Depends how ba- how far back you want to go, but you can go all the way back to Al Qaeda in Iraq and the legacy of Abu Musab al Zarqawi, a Jordanian militant who really steered AQI toward a more sectarian agenda. And there was then a series of expansions and splits into Syria at the beginning of the Syrian civil war that led to the rise of Jabhat al Nusra. And then after various kind of splintering, you had a group declare itself really separate from the al-Qaeda franchise, and that was the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. What was the difference? But you mentioned al-Qaeda and how they were connected to them for a while in their early stages. How do they differ as a group from al-Qaeda? Yeah, well, there's a lot of differences between ISIS and al-Qaeda. I mean, I'll start by saying they have a lot in common and, and there are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of important differences as well. And I've written numerous pieces over the years kind of documenting and highlighting some of these differences. I'd say there's differences in terms of ideology. The Islamic State, a far more severe or austere group and often criticizing al-Qaeda as a takfir, right, as, as an apostate group and kind of not living up to the Islamic State's ideals. The Islamic State was far more brutal and draconian in the way it treated the populations in areas under its control. And there's a number of other differences in terms of tactics, techniques and procedures, capabilities, you name it. So the Islamic State really set itself apart as a different type of group. It attacked a far far more wide range of targets. And I think it also spent a lot more time recruiting foreign fighters to its group. Um, you know, you had tens of thousands of foreign fighters from all over the world. And you mentioned about the foreign fighters there and something that was really quite interesting was was certainly the, their use of propaganda, which was used a lot to encourage people to make the trip essentially over to the Middle East and join the group. Why did they decide to go that route and how different does that make them from other terrorist groups? ISIS spent so much time focused on the propaganda and the recruitment, and frankly, it was able to harness and exploit new tools and technologies in order to do that. You had pretty sophisticated social media outreach to individuals, which could then quickly be taken offline, so to speak, uh, where you had people texting and communicating through encrypted apps. And there was almost a grooming style process in the same way we've seen with pedophiles, where they're reaching out to people and, you know, really trying to kind of talk to them in a way that establishes a personal relationship, you know, and then they introduce the ideology and all the alleged benefits of the group. You know, and this is not a surprise. I wrote a piece in War on the Rocks with Charlie Winter where we look at the very deliberate strategy of the Islamic State in this regard, where they specifically, much akin to a headhunting organization, where they would reach out and recruit individuals that had a background in public relations, graphic design, media. And so that's one of the reasons why when people comment on how sophisticated the group's propaganda looks, well, that's deliberate. I mean, they afforded these individuals with the rank of emir. They uh, gave them kind of more benefits than a regular foot soldier would get. So this was very much a, a smart and cunning and deliberate strategy on the part of the Islamic State. It seems very much like a very modern perspective as well it's that idea of using technologies you said to really push forward your message in a way that we'd certainly not seen on this scale before yeah absolutely and and look this is just the the advent of modern terrorist groups right i mean they will always look to exploit the technologies available to them at their fingertips. And I think, you know, I'm someone that spends a lot of time looking into the future or attempting to anyway and and trying to figure out what 
technologies groups might exploit going forward. We've seen the Islamic State demonstrate capability in using drones, right, and unmanned aerial vehicles. You know, your smaller quadcopter style drones, so nothing fancy, but enough to get the job done. And certainly when you think about the the value of propaganda in this world of increased content and clickbait, I can't count how many articles I saw that basically said the Islamic State has weaponized drones, right? Which which they they really didn't. They used a drone to drop a grenade. Okay. But that got so much coverage, and in part, the Western media does the Islamic State's job for it by kind of hyping this group up. And there was so much hyperbole surrounding that incident. That said, I think the group and other groups that are going to come after it are going to continue to look to exploit technologies like drones, uh, like 3D printing or additive manufacturing, to the extent that they can you know, harness any capability on artificial intelligence or even more worrisome future technologies like CRISPR, gene editing tools, etc., what are your thoughts on the way that the Islamic State actually used antiquities very much as a propaganda attack on the West in a lot of ways, but also looks like they may well have sold antiquities on the black market, many of those things which will then end up in the West in private collections? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the way that the group was able to diversify its portfolio and be really innovative and creative in the ways that it made money. And it also gives the group some training or practice in organized crime, right, which we know has long been a boon for terrorist groups that are able to operate as criminal enterprises and continue to sustain their operations through this type of money making. So, and you're right, it, it's it's ironic that the Islamic State will ultimately sell these antiquities to people in the West, the very, you know, people from the countries who are fighting against the group, right? And so acting against their own interests. You know, when you look at all the organized transnational criminal networks out there, this was an area that was largely off the radar. And I think it's now back on the radar, due in large part to the activities of ISIS. Thank you very much, Colin P. Clark, Senior Research Fellow at the Soufon Center in New York City and Assistant Teaching Professor at Carnegie Mellon University. So why did this religious extremist organization want to attack historical sites and artifacts? Dr. Christina Shoi Leong leads the terrorism and PVE cluster at the GCSP. ISIS gained control of multiple archaeological sites, some of them among the richest archaeological sites in the world. Items looted from Al-Nabuk alone has earned ISIS up to 36 million U.S. dollars. As sites such as Nimrod, Nineveh, and Hatra were being looted, a growing number of artifacts were appearing in global antiquity markets, black markets, and even on eBay. The Association for the Protection of Syrian Archaeology has reported that more than 900 monuments and archaeological sites have been looted, damaged, or completely destroyed. This growing trade in antiquities has been dubbed blood antiques. And while some artifacts are more difficult to sell than blood diamonds, they are far more valuable. The U.S. International Trade Commission has reported that imports of ancient artifacts from Iraq had increased fourfold between 2010 and 2014, reaching an estimated 3.5 million U.S. dollars. Among items in demand are ancient cuneiform tablets, cylinder seals, jars, coins, glass, and particular mosaics. 
Very few of the thousands of looted artifacts from Iraq and Assyria are likely to be recovered. To date, it is impossible to quantify how much money ISIS is profiting, since it will take decades for some of these items to reappear. As a point of reference, Cambodian antiquities stolen during the Civil War turned up at an auction 40 years later. Dr. Christina Shori Leong from the GCSP. Today we're discussing one of the new reports from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, which focuses on antiquities trafficking by ISIS, specifically in Iraq. But of course, we know that this is an issue across the region. Katie Paul is the co-director of the Antiquities Trafficking and Heritage Anthropology Research Project, also known as the Athar Project. The Athar Project is focused not just on antiquities trafficking, but specifically antiquities trafficking on social media platforms like Facebook. For a little over two years now, myself and my co-director, Dr. Amr Al-Azam, have been looking at the illicit trade of antiquities on Facebook and how vast this trade really is online. With the groups that the Athar Project is currently monitoring, Facebook's closed groups and, and public groups, which are insulated communities where individuals can gather for discussion on different topics, we're looking at over 120 different groups just in Arabic. And these groups have a collective 2 million or so members. The largest group we're monitoring has over 230,000 members that is generated in just about two years. And how prevalent is the illicit trade in antiquities in the Middle East and North Africa? There's always been an illicit trade in antiquities. Since there have been graves, there have been grave robbers. The difference with what we're seeing now is that after the Arab Spring destabilized a lot of parts of the, the Middle East and North Africa, countries like Egypt, Syria, Yemen, we saw an explosion in this illicit trade. Take Egypt, for example. The country relied very heavily on tourism. And after that tourism economy did not come back, people started looking for other means of income, in particular antiquities, something that they could literally dig through the floor of their home to find. Pair that with a destabilized government that is unable to deal with this additional crisis, and you really just have an explosion of material making its way onto the market. And the gray nature of this market makes it quite easy for this material to easily get laundered into auction houses in the West, like in London, New York, France, places like that. And how does it relate to other forms of transnational organized crime? Well, there's not just a route for antiquities. When we look at antiquities in the realm of other transnational organized crime, we often see these items trafficked with other material, drugs, weapons, anything that follows existing trafficking routes. Fast forward nearly 10 years since the Arab Spring, and the groups that are really operating in some of these countries to loot, it's not just a layperson anymore that's trying to feed their family. We're seeing very highly organized mafia-type groups, organized crime warlords that have really industrialized this trade across the region. And where do these antiquities end up? There's a global market for ancient artifacts, but the largest markets in the current art market reports are the United States and Europe. Now, of course, you can't 
just very easily dig something straight out of the ground and ship it off to the United States. There are certain memoranda of understanding between the U.S. and several Arab countries to try to stem the flow of that illicit material and stop those kind of imports. But what happens, and what we're seeing a lot of on Facebook, is that these items get laundered through countries like Turkey, through countries like Germany. Um, And while European countries have really tried to clamp down on the trade, one of the things we're seeing is that with this material that's taken straight from the ground and has no provenance and no recorded background, people are taking advantage of some of the loopholes in the art market where they can simply say this item was in the hands of a private collector and it was acquired prior to 1970. And that's really all that they need to get an item with little or no provenance laundered into the market, just some plausible deniability that it hasn't been recently looted. And that's why we see items like the golden sarcophagus that was recently returned from the Met Museum going back because these items were sold under fake provenances. How are they bought and sold? The way these items are bought and sold really depends on the item especially when we look at the types of trafficking we're seeing on Facebook. We see everything from small coins, which someone in any country can easily just throw up on eBay. They don't need to have a provenance. Or we're seeing things like entire coffins, painted wooden coffins. And those, because they're larger, are a little bit more difficult to sell and launder. So those are more specialized and usually come with a far more organized network than the person with a metal detector who's finding some illegal coins, which can still gain a few hundred dollars a piece online. And so there's a variety of ways these things are sold. In some cases, they're sold right on eBay. In other cases, they are sold in person-to-person deals that really never make it to a digital platform. In other cases, items may be laundered onto an an auction site or into a major auction house where they can be sold to high-level buyers. So it really depends on the quality of the material and the types of effort it takes to get that material from its source country to an eventual buyer. Is there a general policy in place to combat this trade? And if so, what can be done to stop it? There are several piecemeal approaches in place. A lot of these go by country. For instance, the United States has started in recent years signing several memoranda of understanding with countries in the MENA region. And essentially what these do is they stop the import of antiquities from those regions. So Egypt, Jordan, Libya all have these memoranda. Because the United States is one of the largest markets for this material, it's an effort to try to stem the flow by cutting off the market. So that's one of the country-to-country options. Then you have the broader protocols like the 1970 UNESCO Convention. And the way that law is applied is really dependent on when a country became a signatory to the 1970 UNESCO Convention. But globally, there is no uniform international law that can be applied to all of these trades. So for instance, in Egypt, the trade in antiquities is illegal no matter what. But in the United States, if it was found prior to 1970, it's actually legal to trade Egyptian antiquities. And so we have a lot of difficulty because there are so many differences between these different countries and the laws and the the way that they're applied. Thanks, Katie. Thank you very much. Katie Paul, the co-director of the Athar Project. So that's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank Colin Clark, Christina Liang, and Katie Paul for joining us here on Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. 
If you'd like to read Tom Westcott's report, Destruction or Theft, head over to our website at www.globalinitiative.net, where you can find that report and many others covering a whole range of crimes and regions. And don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And you can also follow the GI across social media by searching for The Global Initiative. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And I'm Laura Dahl. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.